So what does it look like today to go out from here and begin to live this in such a way that we may reject the kingdom we live under? And I'm not by any means saying anti-America or anti-this. No, but to live in such a way that instead says it doesn't matter what happens in our politics. It matters how I treat my neighbor. It doesn't matter who gets elected or doesn't. It doesn't matter what decisions they make and what they require of us. What matters is how well I love my neighbor, especially my enemy. Can we humble ourselves, put our agendas and egos and pride aside? Can we live worthy of the gospel? See, when we live this way, the whole world sees. Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay, because faith is not about having it all figured out, and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., We pray this message has an impact in your life, or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Well, we are in our third week in this book of Philippians. If you've missed out the last two weeks, uh, I'm glad you're here today. Don't worry, you'll still get something great from Philippians today. But you can always find previous sermons online uh, at thepointknox.com, and you can go back and catch up if you'd like at any point. In this book of Philippians, it's, it's a letter written by a man named Paul man who knew these people very personally. And you and I, we get to engage in this private letter, this personal letter, 2,000 years removed, which is really challenging in many ways because he says stuff that on the surface by themselves are really good and great, and we're like, this is awesome. But he also says things that would have really hurt and convicted and challenged that maybe we don't quite get 2,000 years removed. So as we continue in this letter of Philippians, I mentioned two weeks ago in our first week that uh, there's kind of a style of writing when you would write a personal letter that Paul follows here. This Roman style, you would begin with a greeting and then you would have a thanksgiving, some kind of why you're grateful for the very people you're writing to. And then you'd follow that up with the main thing you want them to understand. And the rest of the letter would be expanding upon that main thing. The primary focus, the thing that matters more than anything else. And today as we explore this book, we're going to get to that main thing of Paul's. Of all the stuff he could write, of all the things he could say, this is for him the most important thing for the church in Philippi. So let's begin in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. 
See, he was in prison and the very moment he's writing this letter, and it wasn't his first time in prison, but he was again in prison. And in this place of suffering and pain, he's writing this letter and he says, I know that it will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall not choose, or which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Huh? Paul, he's writing, and if you recall previously, he's writing about how he's in chains, he's bound to this gospel, and there are some who are using his chains as an opportunity to try to spite him. There are some who are trying to cause him more pain by preaching the gospel the good news of Jesus, this proclamation of the king. And there are some who are preaching this out of rivalry, just trying to cause Paul to get upset. And Paul, he writes, I know that in my suffering, in my chains, in this pain, God's going to deliver me. And I really like the confidence that Paul has here. I like the confidence he has because he says this, he's like, I know God will deliver me from this pain, but even if he doesn't, oh well. Like, I know he's going to because you've been praying for it and he answers prayer. And I know just how much you need the encouragement of me to be there with you. But you know what? Even if I don't get out of this suffering, even if this prison is my death, so be it. I've been in a lot of painful situations, but I've never been in prison yet. I hope that doesn't change. I hope to never go to jail. But Paul's literally in chains, bound to another man, in some cold, dark place, starving. And he's like, look, I'll rejoice. It's all good. See, right off the bat, Paul speaks in a way that's completely foreign to me. 
I don't find rejoicing in my suffering very natural or easy or even very joyful, to be quite honest. I'm much better at wallowing in my suffering or commiserating with others in my suffering, but to rejoice in it. It says this, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. See, Paul is able to have the strength in that suffering and in that pain to withstand. Not because he knows justice is coming. Not because he thinks it'll all work out in the end. It'll be okay. Don't worry about it. No, he says he has this strength because to live is Christ. But to die is gain. Maybe you've heard that quoted out of context. I hear it often, or at least used to hear it quite a bit. What does it mean to live is Christ, to die is gain? Well, quite simply, the way Paul sees the whole world is every breath he takes, every moment he's alive is an opportunity to see God at work in the world around him. Everything he does, whether in prison or whether free, whether he's proclaiming in the streets or singing hymns in prison like we read last week, whatever he's doing is a moment where God can show up and do something great. So to live is Christ. I don't often think that way. I know that I should. I know that as a pastor, I of all people should expect God to be doing something But it's really easy, especially today, to get so worn out and bogged down with the weight of all the noise around me that I just look and go, where are you, God? Like, surely if you were here, you'd be doing something different, right? But Paul, he looks at all this suffering. He says, no matter what may come, good or bad, I have an opportunity to see God at work. And before we get into that very main thing that's coming here in a few verses, I just want to ask you this. How often when life is going rough and things are tough, do you stop and say to God, God, why is this happening? And not in the why as in like, why me, God? Why again, God? Not in the complaining sort of why, but more in the curious. Why, God? Would you do this? What do you have in store through the midst of this pain? Where are you moving when nothing makes sense? What are you doing around me? See, I think we often want to jump to the why in a like pity me sense. Why me, God? This is not fair. This isn't nice. I don't like it. It's mean. But what if we jump to the why in the so now what sense? Okay, God, this world sucks. So what do we do about it? More importantly, what are you doing about it, God? See, I think when we have this attitude that sees to live is Christ, we're freed from the burden of needing to fix every moment. We're freed from the burden of needing to justify every pain. Instead, we can say, God, whatever happens, you're still God. It'll be okay. But to die is gain. You see, Paul, he's not afraid of losing his life. He's not afraid of losing his possessions. He's not afraid of losing any of his comfort, any of his peace. He's not afraid of anything he might lose. Because to die is gain. You see, for Paul, 
when he dies, there's this confident hope in the resurrection. And in America, we often think of this hope in the resurrection as this like weird, bizarre thing. I've mentioned it before, but we often think like when I die, it'll be fine. I'm going to heaven. I'll float around and I'll play all the golf I want to play and I'll get a hole in one every time and I'll probably eat all the calories I want to eat and it won't really matter, right? And I can just do whatever. It'll be this wonderful, peaceful, great thing. Oh, and by the way, the streets will be paved with gold. That's cool. But that's not the picture of death that Paul and these first century Christians had. You see, for them, death was a separation from your body. Your soul and your body were torn in two, and in death, there's this great anguish and pain. And for most of his audience and the people he'd write to, especially for those who were not Christian, death was this great unknown, this great mystery to be avoided or feared but not for Paul. You see, for him, death is just the beginning. It's just the start of something greater still. Not because he had this attitude that it was like death doesn't matter, but because he had this Lord who'd conquered death, this Jesus who rose from the dead and promised everyone will follow. So he had this promise that whatever happened, God is God. And he could go through this pain and go through this suffering and endure whatever hardships came because to live is Christ, but to die is gain. It only gets better from here. He says, I don't know what's gonna happen to me. I don't know which I shall choose. If I'll die, if I'll live, I don't know. But here's what I do know. This thing, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, for Paul, death wasn't an enemy because it had been defeated. Life wasn't a thing that was intended to be joy and happiness, but was intended to be an opportunity to see God at work. And so he says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, 2,000 years removed, this can be a really confusing verse. Like, what does it mean that your life is worthy of the gospel? If the gospel is this good news that Jesus has conquered death, that not a one of us deserve forgiveness, but he alone gives it through grace, if this is the gospel... How do you live worthy of a gift you can't earn? Well, living your life worthy of the gospel is not earning it, but rather what happens because of it? What do you do in response to the gospel? What do you do, how do you live, how do you think, how do you act because of this good news that you don't just share with your lips, but that actually inhabits your life, that fills you to the full no matter what you may face. A life worthy of the gospel is not earning the gospel, but a life befitting of one who has it. So let me clarify that a little more. See, in some translations, they don't translate a life worthy of the gospel, but they say live as a citizen of the gospel kingdom. 
What? Live as a citizen. You see, the verb that's used here carries a political connotation. And if you recall in the very beginning of this chapter, I mentioned Paul writes that Jesus is Lord, which for you and I seems commonplace, but for them was a very dangerous statement. They lived in a culture where Caesar, the king, the one who sat on the throne, the man over the political kingdom, he alone was to be Lord, and you could have your other gods as long as he was the primary or the best of your gods. But Paul, he's written so far to the people in Philippi that Jesus alone is Lord. And he's not just writing to a people who have this political leader, this emperor, this one who thinks he's worthy of all worship. No, he's writing to a people in a colony that was established by military vets. These were the most loyal of all people. The ones who were known to be the most faithful to the king. And their job as a colony is to go and spread to the rest of the Roman Empire what it means to live the life as a Roman citizen. It's their job to live in such a way, to talk in such a way, to act in such a way that everybody around them would know that's what it means to be Roman. And that's what I should aspire to, is to be like them. But now Paul, he uses the same language to live as a citizen, not of this kingdom, not of this world, not of Rome as we know it, but instead to live as a citizen of the gospel. Paul is writing a very dangerous statement here. Let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Is Paul functionally saying, it does not matter what this king may say or do. It does not matter what it means to be Roman what it means to fit into this culture, to live like this people. It doesn't matter if you're a patriot or not. What matters is Jesus. Amen. And in this day and age, imagine going to church. You show up in the small gathering at Lydia's house, one of the first converts. You're there with maybe 20 or 30 other people and they get up and like, we've got a letter from Paul. Oh, you're so excited, you love Paul. And they begin to read, you should live in such a way that you're no longer a Roman, but a citizen of the kingdom of God. Those are dangerous words. They're fighting words. You could be accused of insurrection and all kinds of dangerous things. You could be killed for saying I'm not a Roman, but instead belong to a different king. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. See, it doesn't really matter how well you live in this world if your life is just proclaiming this kingdom of this world. If all the things you say and things you do just simply build up this world and the king of this world, it's really empty. But rather, let your life be worthy of the gospel. Live as one who's called and sent to go and proclaim this new message, this new hope, this new king who's greater even than this king here. Live in this way. 
so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Paul uses language here that is very resonant with military people. Uses language of the military instead to say, rather than fighting for that, standing firm, holding your ground, rather than being that, you should stand firm for faith. Hold your ground here. He uses this language that would have cut them to the core. If we take Paul seriously, we could be in a lot of trouble. If we take him seriously, we might lose all of our rights and all of our privileges and all of our livelihood as we currently know it. And maybe we'll end up right next to Paul in prison, facing death. See, this is the call that Paul has for the people in Philippi. It does not matter if you submit to this emperor and if you proclaim this king. What matters is that your life proclaims Jesus. And if it doesn't, you've missed the mark. Striving side by side for faith in the gospel. See, the thing that made the Roman military so mighty and so powerful, the very people he was writing to, these former military men and women, the very thing that made them so strong was their unity, their togetherness. No matter what, they had one common mission, and it was whatever the king had said. This is what they did, period. No questions asked. I wonder what it would look like to take Paul seriously for us. I wonder what it would look like to live worthy of the gospel 2,000 years removed in a country that looks nothing like Rome. Well, Paul, he continues. In the rest of this letter, he spells out this worthy life. And I want to tell you, it's really uncomfortable Because to live as a citizen of the gospel of kingdom or the gospel of Christ, to live as a citizen of God's kingdom and not this world, what he says in the next three chapters is really simple. Humble yourself. Become less so that others can become more. Rejoice when you suffer for the sake of this kingdom. Humble yourself. We live in a culture today that wants to make much of each one of us. Wants to make each one of us more and more and build up our own egos and our own attitudes, our own opinions, our own perspectives. Just make me the center of our life. But that's the exact opposite of what Paul says is a life worthy of the gospel. To live a life worthy of the gospel is to daily die to yourself and become less. Even if it means losing your livelihood and losing your comfort and losing a few friends, even if it means potentially facing danger, are we willing to do that? See, this last year and especially these last two weeks, it's been really clear to me that the church in America is not standing firm side by side in faith. We're really divided. 
And in many cases, I would say in every case in some way, we're really divided because our ego and our agenda and our plan gets put ahead of the gospel. And this isn't an us versus them reality. I think it's just a reality. We, the people of God, often fail to live as citizens of his kingdom. So what does it look like today to go out from here and begin to live this in such a way that we may reject the kingdom we live under? And I'm not by any means saying anti-America or anti-this. No, but to live in such a way that instead says it doesn't matter what happens in our politics. It matters how I treat my neighbor. It doesn't matter who gets elected or doesn't. It doesn't matter what decisions they make and what they require of us. What matters is how well I love my neighbor, especially my enemy. Can we humble ourselves, put our agendas and egos and pride aside? Can we live worthy of the gospel? See, when we live this way, the whole world sees. In fact, Paul, he writes this. He he says, not frightened by anything in your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. When you and I live with such peace that says, I don't need to be like this world. I don't need to divide like this world. I don't need to hate like this world. I don't need to celebrate this world. I don't need to do anything like this world. I can live worthy of the gospel by humbling myself and embracing whatever may happen. I can find joy and peace in my suffering. When we do this, it says it will be damnation or destruction to those who are our enemies. Quite simply, I don't think Paul is telling us that we should wish for the destruction of our enemies, but rather, it's really, really hard to continue to hate somebody who always loves you. It's really, really hard to discredit the message that you might be living out when everything you do each day is not about yourself, but about sharing with others this hope and this peace and this love that we find in Christ. It's really hard to continue to accuse and attack and malign you. Malign? Malign? Whatever. Right? It's really easy or hard to do that when no matter how they press against you, you remain silent and love them back. He says, and it's a clear sign not only of their destruction, but of your salvation. The word salvation in English comes from the word that we also get the word salve or ointment. Salvation quite literally means healing. It's not just our rescue from this world, but even our healing in this world. The salvation that Jesus gives is you and I not being as angry as we once were, finding healing. Not being as bitter as we may be prone to be. Not being as selfish as we used to be, but finding healing in him. We can say, it's not about me. It's not about my agenda. So let me learn to lay it down and love you. 
See, when we live worthy of the gospel, our enemies, our opponents, those who stand against us, will see there has been something in you and I that is different, that has found healing. And in turn, it will convict them of the things that are still broken in them. And whether it changes their perspective or their reality or the way they treat you or not doesn't matter. Because to live is Christ, to die is gain. Amen. Will you join me in prayer? God, we come before you. We ask that you would make us worthy. Would you teach us how to see your kingdom and your gospel as superior to any kingdom of this world? Would we stop fighting over whether we're this or that, whether we stand here or there, whether we believe this or that, but God, would we be unified in the pursuit of faith, that we would draw close to each other and stand side by side to declare your kingdom is not like this world. You are the king, not over an empire, but over the whole universe. And you have conquered death. So God, we pray for peace, for joy, for the willingness to be humble enough to love our enemies and surrender even our daily comforts, our daily opinions and perspectives. God, just to live with you as the most important thing. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Every time we gather, part of our gathering includes collecting an offering. And if you're new here and you've been to churches in the past and you're like, that's really weird, why are they doing this? They just want my money. I'll just be really honest, I don't care about your money. I, I don't, I really care about you. And, and I think Jesus makes it really clear that where we spend our money changes what we love and what we care about. And so in this place, we collect an offering for those who want to partner and want to support and say, I want to be a part of what God is doing through this people in this community. And, and we do so by giving our finances. So if you came prepared today to join us in that endeavor, if you would like to partner with us and say, I want to see God move today through the people of the point and in turn tomorrow and everywhere we go, you can give in the popcorn buckets in the back as you exit, or you can give online at thepointknox.com. However you give and whatever you give, know this, God won't love you any more or less by the size of your gift. We don't give to get his love. We give because we already have it. Thank you. And now we get all of your questions. Yeah. Which there are actually some really, really good questions this week, so I'm excited. Some real doozies. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Well, no, just like good ones. Anyway, um, first things first, someone out there loves your t-shirt. Thank so, you. So, great shirt. Um, okay. Now, first question. How do you deal with holding on to faith when you're so angry at God for taking someone who is still needed here, someone who did and lived as God intended? How do you get through what's next? So, how do you grieve when we lose somebody that we love, how do you move in the grief process past anger? Uh, if you're grieving, if you're hurting, especially the loss of a loved one, anger is really normal and natural. And I don't think most of us get through that anger by ourselves. 
And so the best thing to do if you're grieving is to find a community of people who can encourage you and support you and pray with you and even help you maybe see some of the things that you've been blinded to by that anger. Um, I know several people here in this space who would gladly sit down and buy you some coffee or talk with you and just listen and hear some of that pain and hear those stories of the loved one that you're grieving and help you in the process. Um, Just let me know and I'd love to connect you with them. Um, Next question. Why did God allow Paul to suffer in prison? How did Paul see God's work from inside a prison? Great. We have an aversion to suffering here in this country. In fact, our very constitution and like founding fathers think that the pursuit of happiness is one of our goals. And so um, we don't think suffering is really ever good and we often want to run from it. But there's a lot of times that it's actually suffering that produces in us hope and it's suffering that produces character and it's suffering that takes all those rough edges around us and shapes them into something different. And so why did God allow Paul to suffer in prison? I don't know, but I do know some really cool things happened. When Paul was in prison, he prayed, he sang hymns, and God like miraculously opened the doors. And other times, just by Paul living with such hope and such peace and such joy and proclaiming to everybody he met, like, let me tell you about this gospel, this Jesus. The whole imperial guard, all the people around him came to hear of this. And in many cases, they came to go, that, that Jesus you continue to worship seems really awesome. In fact, throughout the world and all the world's history, the church has always been the strongest in times when it's suffered directly. And sometimes in America, we think that the church is suffering directly because we might lose tax-exempt status or something like that. I don't know if that's really the same suffering, but I do know that every time the church has been persecuted and and people have uh, wanted to imprison Christians or torture or kill Christians, it's always turned out really good in the end. Um, So I don't want it, but so be it, I guess. All right, just a few more. Um, This one says, I admit that I am powerless and I'm having trouble turning over my faith and trust to God. How can I work on turning everything over to God? I think every day we all need to turn a little more over to God and it's really easy to think that either I've reached it and I've gotten to that place where I don't need to turn anything else over or to get stuck in that place where we just don't know how to keep going. We're like, I've tried everything and I keep failing. And just like with grief, I don't think we were intended to do this alone. So if you are stuck in your faith and you're struggling, how do I continue to trust God or grow? Find somebody. Let us help you find somebody. We'll even be that person for a season. Say, we are here to help you get unstuck and keep going. Uh, I think that every one of us needs a whole group of people to stand around side us and say, you can do this because you can't do it by yourself. So, All right, just two more. Um, these are good, right? Yeah. These are really good ones. I don't know if I'm helpful, but you're welcome to come talk to me at any point more about these things. Yeah. All right. There have been conflicting statements from coworkers about what they think about things and me at work. How can I best serve my workplace and employees while not letting gossip affect me? Ooh. um, It's a great question. I'm going to give this a longer answer on Wednesday. My short answer is um, we often feel the need to defend ourselves 
and I don't know that it's necessary. So if the gossip is directly hurting you, like you might lose your job because of lies, then maybe you should speak up. And if it's indirectly hurting you because gossip sucks and it hurts and emotionally, like, man, that was garbage. Why would you treat me that way? Well, then uh, again, find a community like us. We'll be there to say, hey, we know who you really are, a child of God. And that stuff doesn't matter. Those are lies meant to distract you. Um, but more specifically, what do you do with your coworkers? I'm going to tackle that a little bit on Wednesday when I've given it some more thought and can be more thorough. Yeah. So, um, so that'll be on the Point Knox. Um, follow us on Facebook for that. This is the last question. What are some things I can do to help me live as a citizen of the gospel, live as Christ, when the world and the things in it just make you sad and disappointed? How can you not think only of the hope that is to die is to gain when we still have so much living to do? Oof, wow. So I'm saying, they're okay. like really uh, good. I'm currently in the middle of this very question with some of the leaders of the point. What does it look like to begin to slow our lives down and just focus on this very thing that matters, on Jesus? And I'm going to say where I'm personally at right now, one of the most helpful things for me in the last two months has been quite literally to shut stuff off. Like, turn off your social media for just a few hours. It will be freeing. Turn off the news, whichever news you listen to. Just disengage. One of the challenges we face in 2021 is we are more inundated with information than ever before in history. And our bodies and our brains and our hearts and souls, we weren't made to process this much information all the time. So I'd say begin to start by stopping. Just stop doing that. Stop engaging with this thing. Uh, it's really difficult, it's hard, but it's freeing. Uh, and then I'd say the next step is begin to focus your life on something or someone different. Maybe that looks like taking up a new spiritual discipline and saying, I want to practice being in the word every day, or I want to practice being in prayer each day, or I want to practice sitting in silence and just listening to the world around me. Whatever that spiritual discipline is, um, maybe you should begin to do something new you've never tried before. Uh, again, if you have never done any of these spiritual disciplines, you're like, I don't know what even that means. Where do I start? We would love to help you find a way to begin starting something new. In fact, every Monday, Emily puts online um, some connection group content, a short little devotion and Bible study that you can do with some friends or you could do by yourself. Just take a few minutes and say, let me answer these questions and think about these issues and read this scripture and see what to do with it. So uh, how do you... Begin, what was the question? Uh, you don't have to pull it out. Okay. <laughs> I don't remember the exact wording. I was going to repeat the wording, but I don't remember. So basically, how do you, how do you begin to uh, live worthy of, of the gospel? Maybe you intentionally find those things that are pulling you away from the gospel and just shut them off for the time being. Not forever, but for now. You said that was it? That, that is the last question. I think every question is always a good question, but certainly some of those are really deep questions that were challenging, so thank you. Every week you can text those in, and if I don't respond to them, I'll respond to them on thepointknox.com or on Facebook on Wednesday. Uh, you can always text those questions in during the week. The number's online, and I'll gladly respond to them later. As you go now, receive this blessing. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.